Welcome to the Innovate for Impact podcast. This podcast is for leaders in the social sector like you who want to make a difference. Each episode is packed with practical ideas on how you can be more innovative and create an even bigger social impact. We share our ideas on what you can do and also speak to leaders from the sector to share best practice. So let's get into it and let's talk impact. Welcome to the Innovate for Impact podcast, as usual, with Tracy Newman and Dan Bentley. And today we're really excited to be joined by Peter Walton, the CEO of Care Australia. So welcome, Peter. Uh, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Excellent. We always like to start off with a little bit of a, a sort of warm-up question. So can you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what it is that you do? Yes, I'm Peter Walton. I'm currently Chief Executive of Care Australia, but um, you know, have spent most of my career the last 30-odd years working largely in for-purpose organisations and, and mostly in the sort of um, humanitarian international development space across multiple countries, continents, etc. I did have a brief foray out into a different role in my past as CEO of an organisation that uses technology for social impact. And I think that sort of it's quite important to me because I think I like to characterise my career as being a bit of a convergence of things, sort of real interest in innovation and actually doing things in smarter ways. But I'm also fundamentally interested in the idea that, you know, the charity model needs to evolve and we have to have a mix of both uh, passion for a cause or an issue, but absolutely also really robust business credentials to you know be accountable and run run an organization in the most effective way so I like to think that I've sort of brought a lot of these things together and it's certainly work in progress but over the 30 years of my career you know I think there's been many epiphany moments that have sort of caused me to pivot leading me to where I am now so I'm happy to talk about that today. I think it's really exciting when you consider 30 years of of working in that way you must have seen some immense change over that period. Uh, hugely culminating in where we're at now. I think the world is in a really almost unprecedented state of, uh, you know, the challenges that we have are enormous. And it's also getting more and more complex. I think we've often sort of remark on, you know, the work of organisations like CARE or Red Cross, where I was at before, very much was responding to adversity. You know, the adversity and the vulnerability, the sort of the issues of deprivation, exclusion, so forth, there aren't peaks and troughs. They're almost chronic, constant now. And, you know, I think it is a, you know, a challenge to organisations to adapt because, you know, the relevance to be impactful against, you know, the backdrop of huge challenges requires it, it demands it. So I think, yeah, but I have seen a lot of changes from the early 90s when I guess probably one of my first epiphany moments, if I can characterise, is that, you know, armed with my, a master's degree in, in development economics, sort of um, effectively swanning around West Africa, feeling as if I was, you know, there saving the world. And, you know, it was an epiphany moment because, you know, frankly, these people didn't need saving. They needed a level playing field and they needed a different type of support. And an early moment for me was young British guy in sort of West Africa. I think I said to you, Previously, it almost felt like a Where's Wally moment. You know, I used to show these photographs of myself as the only white face thinking, you know, what incredible work I'm doing. And I was proud and, you know, well-intentioned. But actually, I look back at some of those photos now and sort of cringe because I think it epitomised you know, a lot of what I've spent my career sort of trying to reform now. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting change. 
Yeah, so you sort of talk about the need and the complexity. What are some of the ways that you see is possible for us to adapt to this new environment? A multitude of ways. You know, I just think complex problems, uh, you know, aren't going to be solved by some of the traditional approaches. And and, um, that's not to say that a lot of the charity models and the good work that has happened was wrong in any way. But I would just argue now that it's not enough. You know, the the level of complexity that we're dealing with, frankly, even before COVID hit, you know, the world's in-tray was overflowing. We had increasing frequency intensity of natural disasters or climate-related disasters, I should say. Uh, We're seeing more people on the move, refugees and displaced people than, than ever before. You know, rise of populism. The world was getting complex. Then we get hit by a pandemic. And actually, if you fast forward to 2030, in alignment with the sustainable development goals, you know, we're forecasting a planet that's going to probably be at least a one, one and a half degrees warmer and all of the consequences that that will bring. Uh, there'll be a billion more people on the planet and, you know, all of the challenges around that. But also we are so interconnected now with climate change and everything we're seeing, you know, we're not equipped to deal with those problems now. And in fact, pre-COVID, there was a 40% shortfall in um, humanitarian financing for the for the needs of the day. Then you add in a pandemic, and in CARE's case, it was the, the first time in our 76-year history where we had a simultaneous emergency in every country where we operated. And those countries heavily impacted by COVID and you know, limited access to vaccinations, but also you know, all of the other challenges around climate change, uh, conflict, instability, so forth, didn't go away. So it's a long answer to a short question, Tracy. What, what can we do differently? We have to start thinking around how do we do things differently? How do we solve complex problems in smarter ways? And, you know, one of the things that I'm really passionate about is, you know, how do we genuinely shift towards having a more localised response, not this fly-in, fly-out international response to crises, which many would characterise as, you know, tarnished by white saviourism anyway, and happy to talk about that. But, you know, I think we, we need to be thinking around, you know, how, how do we genuinely have the capacity so that uh, responses and dealing with these challenges are as local as possible, but only international as necessary, so that it's international solidarity, not us dictating from rich countries how, how the world should operate. So I, I see that as a real opportunity. And I also see huge opportunity for different forms of partnership now, because complex problems can be solved with... Um, you know, different approaches, you know, whether that's partnerships with specialist law firms in terms of um, making sure we have a level playing field, whether it's the role of technology, uh, there's a whole range of things. And I think with corporates, uh, commercial organisations, the desire to actually also make sure that they're contributing and helping to solve social problems is, is, you know, at at a level that it probably has never been at for for years and years. There's obligations there. So I think new forms of partnership and new forms of financing are are the future and we have to embrace that, not resist it. Yeah, I I think it's some some really good points there, Peter. And have you you seen any really good examples of where this localised approach has, has worked well so far? Almost by accident, COVID thrust a, a localized response uh, on the world because, um, you know, maybe I can illustrate that with an example. And, and again, probably another moment for me, which sort of caused me to think differently. I was the international director with Red Cross for seven or eight years. And in that time, um, tropical cyclone PAM hit Vanuatu. 
And it was the biggest, most intense um, cyclone to hit that country ever. So what really struck me about that was, you know, by my estimate, over 100, I think possibly up to 130 international organizations descended on this um, small island state. Its population was just over a quarter of a million to 300,000. And those international organizations effectively dictated a response and arguably bypassed the local economy. Uh, The economy had a huge hit in terms of its GDP. And whilst it was all well-intended, it actually ran the risk of really doing harm. One of my first speeches when I took the job with Care Australia at the beginning of 2020 was straight after the the catastrophic bushfires here. And I did make the comparison that if 100 plus international organisations descended on Australia and said, you know, this is how you're going to operate, this is how you're going to respond, we'd think it would be outrageous. That's sort of the way that with the international system, international aid system is set up at the moment. And whilst it is a point in time assessment around how do we deal with this immediate need, we have to have a longer term perspective. You know, what do we do to be less needed each and every time there's a climate related disaster or or so forth? And for me, that is really around building up local civil society and us thinking about a different role that international organisations can play. Um, After that event, I commissioned some research um, to explore what would a locally-led humanitarian ecosystem look like in the Pacific. And importantly, that research was done by local researchers using local methodologies, but the the feedback was pretty powerful for me. It basically said, if you're serious about changing and being truly locally-led, you've got to start by changing yourself. One particular term that resonated with me was a Pacific Islander man who said, you know, at times of disaster, what we need is a locally made canoe, but you send in a battleship. So I think there's a a situation where we need to be more humble, to have humility and actually think, well, what is it we're trying to achieve so that we're moving away from just treating symptoms largely to sort of shifting the pendulum over time to be less and less needed so that, that was the journey I embarked on at Red Cross, and it's very similar to a journey that I'm leading at Care Australia now around thinking differently around you know, how are we playing a complementary role, one that really respects the um, independence, but also you know, the genuine um, ability that local organisations have to know what's best for them and their communities. So we've started that process and it's moving in the right direction, uh, but I think we're also trying to make sure that we're influencing others to follow suit because otherwise, you know, the the old system will be perpetuated and and frankly, the old system isn't equipped to deal with the challenges that we're dealing with right now. Uh, There's so much in there that we see reflected, not just in international work, but local work as well. It's that whole idea of if you want to provide somebody with support, ask them what they need, really listen to what they need and then facilitate them being able to have that rather than just sort of coming in over the top and providing people with what you think they need. Like that just comes up constantly and I agree, you know, if other international countries came into Australia and and did that for us, we would be quite concerned. Like nobody knows more than themselves what they really need and so to try and kind of impose that on someone whilst well-meaning can can be really annoying, I'm sure. The other piece that I was also particularly interested in is that collaboration and that working at that sort of system level so that you're not creating change only to have somebody else step in and, and work the way that you used to work. So how are you sort of building up some of that collaboration? 
There's no silver bullet. You know, with good intentions, the international aid systems work the way it has for decades. So, you know, we're really conscious around, you know, needing to build up momentum and, and I guess a coalition to highlight these things. But, you know, I, I actually think we are at quite a pivotal moment with, you know, conflict around the world and COVID and climate change. You know, the inequities of the world are sort of being highlighted like never before, you know, on, on the back of Black Lives Matters, Me Too movement. I think there's a real moment now where people are saying this isn't working. So, you know, we're doing a number of things. But firstly, it's walking the talk and changing ourselves and changing our model, changing our approach, a real commitment around equitable partnerships and, and a real commitment to dispelling some of the myths that exist within the sector. And one of the things that we have done is um, made a commitment to what we call strengths-based communication. Without being too provocative, uh, your, your listeners don't have to look that far here in Australia and internationally to find the way that some international organisations portray what they're doing is actually just reinforcing quite uh, outdated stereotypes. You know, there's a, a portrayal of people in a whole range of development countries at, at times of need as being uh, helpless victims in needing of saviour, saving. You know, and that white saviourism just it reinforces the stereotypes that these people are just helpless. And, you know, that couldn't be more far from the truth. You know, they know what they need, but they just need a, a level playing field. So we've made a commitment around, A, not presenting those outdated images that we've often seen in the 80s and 90s, but still continue now of, you know, um, ch children in Africa with distended stomachs and flies around them. And it's just, it, it's a picture of hopelessness, not a picture of hope. And we know that there are solutions. So we've made a commitment to um, presenting solutions and presenting how we will complement and add value and mutually reinforce the efforts of local organizations aligned with the things that are a priority to us. So I'm really proud of that because I think there was a, a bit of a myth that if you sort of change the way that you market as an organization, you, you'd lose money and the support. We have in some areas, but we've gained in many others and we're not going backwards. So I think that's a really important development. But it's then also around walking the talk in terms of how you operate. So we've got a very firm commitment around steps forward in terms of women's economic justice, dealing with the issues of climate, but specifically with the gender lens, because we know that women and children are up to 14 times more likely to die or be injured at times of uh, disaster in Asia Pacific. So we, um, you know, that's our focus. And we have partnerships with uh, local organisations to really work together in an equitable way to pursue those shared goals. But importantly, there's a shift of decision-making and resourcing. So earlier, um, Tracy, you spoke about the systems change. Maybe for your listeners, I can just paint a picture of how the humanitarian system currently works. A few years ago, a significant summit called the World Humanitarian Summit that was seeking to have you know, fundamental change in terms of the way humanitarian organisations and, and donors, government donors worked. And there was a commitment to shift 25% of humanitarian funding directly to local organisations because of all the humanitarian funds raised globally, only about 3% goes directly to local organisations. So that figure just alarmed me. And frankly, it's gone backwards over COVID. So we need to see some really fundamental shifts so that, you know, the, the architecture of the global system can't spend its money on itself. But that's predominantly what still happens. But we are seeing movement here. The US government has just come out and said that by 2030, 50% of all of their aid will go directly to local organisations. 
And I actually think, you know, the Australian government needs to follow suit with some bold commitments. The implications of that, though, are international organisations like CARE have to change their model. And so we, you know, I like to think we're on the front foot in terms of doing that, but also leaning in to sort of not fall for any of the hype or the rhetoric around this. So since the World Humanitarian Summit, there hasn't been movements despite the commitment. And I think, you know, even when we talk about the concept of locally led or localization, there's a lot of spin. Many organizations would say, well, we, we employ national staff, so we're local. That's not local. It's, it's better than not employing national staff. But actually, the decisions, the resources are still largely spent not on those most impacted in, in many, many cases. And I'm, I'm generalizing a, a, a little bit, but I think that's largely what happens. An INGO will win a grant from government. They'll need to cover their costs. They'll cover the costs of their regional office. The local partner will often get you know, very specific project-based funding for a period of one, two, three years never in a position to really build up their capacity to be less and less reliant on some of those international partnerships. So that's one of the circuit breakers we're looking at. How do we provide core funding? How do we actually take a longer term perspective around building up that local capacity, but with our local partners really in the driving seat and making sure that we're not competing unfairly with emergent local civil society, you know, because there's there's a lot of competition for funding. So we've got to make sure that we're not actually competing unfairly with the very organisations that we're seeking to support. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? How there is that competition for funding and there is that risk that, again, well-intentioned, but, you know, you're sort of applying for that funding, but you might be against a, a national or a, a local. And of course, they're not going to be able to compete against the resources and and the structure and everything that sits behind an organisation like like Care Australia, I imagine. If you're loving what you're hearing on our podcast, you should join us for one of our live events where we cover how you can build a more innovative and impactful organisation. We also have our very popular Co-Design for Impact Masterclass where I'll teach you how to run your own co-design projects and how to set them up for success. Spots are limited, so grab your ticket to this and our other events at impactoconsulting.com.au slash events. So when you talk about that 3% going backwards, I'm, I'm astounded because it seems like there's not a whole lot of room to go backwards from only that 3%. We can see that there's that intent and there are some things that are starting to change, but what do you think is is um, needed to move, to really move that dial forward? There's, there's the change within the organisation, but what else is available? I think there's a number of things. I'm part of this group called the Pledge for Change, and in fact, I'm the, the only Australian-based organisation represented on that. It's a group of CEOs that have been brought together by an African advocate called Dagan Ali. And, you know, she's been talking quite a lot in recent years around the concept of, you know, how do you decolonise aid? So she has uh, invited a number of CEOs that she understands are really committed to reform and like we can all talk about the system being not fit for purpose you know the UK parliament just uh, did an investigation into racism within international aid this group has come together to say look it, it isn't working it isn't fit for purpose it's falling short for the challenges that we face globally how can we really push for genuine reform. And that group is uh, really getting a lot of traction now. And there's uh, a number of the large global families of 
uh, international NGOs are on the verge of signing up to a range of pledges, commitments across a number of areas to challenge the way that aid works. The first of those is around making equitable partnerships the default and really having ways of measuring how funding and decision-making is and power, frankly, is, be, is being shifted over time and being transparent uh, to report on that. The second is what I talked about before, that sort of um, authentic storytelling, taking some of the, uh, I guess, the colonial language out of the way that we tell publics, the Australian public, what's going on. So that is really important because, you know, in many organisations, the stories are told by journalists that fly in or staff that fly in. We're really looking at how do we collectively amplify local voice and also you know, from CARE's perspective, we know that the majority of photographs that were sort of used in our publicity material were all taken by international photographers. We, you know, why aren't we engaging more with local suppliers and so forth? That shift around the language, both making sure the language and the images we use do not perpetuate um, outdated stereotypes is a second commitment. Um, the third and probably really important one is around the international aid system is sort of partly the construct from the way that um, government donors, institutional donors have transferred risk. So in many cases, in you know, large donors, in, in Australia's case, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, but all of their counterparts around the world, you know, they work with INGOs because INGOs effectively manage a lot of the risks for them and they manage a lot of the risks around making sure that public funding is, is accountable. Sometimes that risk management is um, disproportionate to the risk that they think is involved. And we need to do more around challenging that. So I think one of the myths is, well, you can't trust local organisations. There'll be more corruption. They don't have the capacity to deliver what we need. So we'll go with an international organisation first. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, there aren't capacity issues with local civil society organisations, but that's a point in time assessment. And it's never going to change unless we change our mindset around how we support them differently and do it in a way which is complementary, not dictatorial, really. That's a really critical element of this pledge that, you know, with a range of international organisations soon to go public on this saying, this is what we demand in terms of how we need to change. This is what we want to have a dialogue with you about in terms of our respective governmental donors. And I think that will get traction. You know, the recent change of government here in Australia, you know, there seems to be a firm commitment around um, what Penny Wong has labelled First Nations foreign policy. You know, and First Nations foreign policy, you know, there are parallels with, the, you know, Indigenous Australia and the right to self-determination, equality, solidarity, etc. So I actually think there's a pivotal moment where we can start to see how we can do things differently. I think the flip side of the pledge is many organisations highlighting the sort of change that we want to see will be a bit of a challenge for those organisations that, you know, arguably are still using what I would see as outdated images, outdated approaches, you know, and so forth. So uh, I think that's going to get some traction and hopefully does result in some systems change. You know, we obviously have a lot, a lot of listeners today who aren't necessarily, you know, involved in international aid. What do you see is possible for everybody to do that's going to contribute to this change? It's an interesting one because I think for many, many years now, the Australian public has been hearing the language of help Australians first. And I think in an interconnected world, that in itself is quite simplistic. You know, we, we don't live in a world where we can put up a barrier around Australia and protect Australia and we're okay, but forget everyone else. 
it's far too interconnected. And, and frankly, um, you know, climate change doesn't uh, respect international borders. Pandemics don't respect international borders. You know, we are dealing with complex problems and we have to think differently. And, and we know through time that international aid from uh, Australia or from any rich country is actually good for that country. You know, a lot of our former aid recipient countries here in Australia are now major trading partners. And, you know, so this is important. You know, the various mechanisms of um, statecraft, whether it's, you know, diplomacy, whether it's international aid, they're all critical in terms of um, making sure that we're dealing with these issues for the benefit of all and that there is, a, a, you know, and I think the pandemic has really highlighted that. We can have a vaccinated country here in Australia, but if we're not actually helping uh, our neighbouring countries to be fully vaccinated, then, you know, frankly, it's a Band-Aid solution to sort of um, a deeper problem. So absolutely there's things that we can do. A, we need to overcome the sort of... Um, the image of aid as being helping others rather than Australians. This is good for Australia too, uh, I think it is, is one thing. I think the other thing we can do is recognising that people, especially the younger generation, are deeply connected to issues and causes and uh, helping other countries is also something which can be really beneficial to everybody. And there are different ways that we can do that. So when I think about climate change and, you know, commitments around net zero, for example, we have a, a lot of leadership coming from corporate Australia now around well, what is it going to take to get there? Even though Australia is a high per capita polluter, you know, there's so much that we can do to sort of make sure that we're providing broader support. So that, for me, is an opportunity to actually start pursuing different forms of partnership, different forms of financing instruments around sort of carbon offsetting and so forth, but recognising that we, we aren't dealing with problems that are discrete to Australia. We're dealing with problems globally, and we have to actually play our part. Love that. That's really great. Thank you. You did mention that there is a, a coalition that you are part of. What's next for that coalition? It looks like you've got some really great groundwork that, that's happening. What are the next steps there? So we are anticipating to go um, live and launch the Pledge for Change in late September, early October. After that, there'll be not only public uh, and transparent commitments around, well, what does this mean in terms of how we're all collectively changing and, and, and how we'll prove that and report on it over time. But it will also be the start of a broader conversation with various governments to say, you know, we're committed to change. All of you governments have spoken about making these shifts. The US government has made this shift now, but, you know, the proof is in the pudding. You, you can say it. It's been said many times before, but how are you going to operate differently? And that's a dialogue that we want to have with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and with Minister Penny Wong and Minister Pat Conroy to say, you know, the current way that we're working our aid programme isn't fully aligned with the intentions that have been outlined time and time again. And, you know, so now is the time for, for change. What are the incremental changes that we will make, recognising that it isn't a quick fix. It has to be done in a way that is sustained over time. But ultimately, you know, we want to get to a position where, you know, our, our support is complementary to other countries and, uh, you know, that benefits all. One of the other things that we're really focused on is, you know, we're very proud of Care Australia's history from when we were founded and all of the fantastic work that we've done. You know, the advances in gender equality have been incredible, even though there is a risk of a generational reversal because of COVID. But, you know, a lot of the work of the past has been really made progress, but it needs to be protected and built upon. And that isn't just doing the same thing the same way. So the way that international aid has often been funded in the past has been that very 
traditional philanthropic model of uh, here's some money, spend it on a project. Increasingly, we're saying, well, you know, how do we solve complex problems differently? And that means different forms of partnership. So, you know, when I was at the Red Cross, we invested heavily in partnerships with law firms around looking at um, changes in legislation in various jurisdictions to better facilitate international assistance, assistance that wasn't caught up in customs delays and so forth. You know, it's looking at partnerships with law firms around um, housing, land and property. You know, why can people not rebuild their houses where they've lived for generations because they can't prove ownership or tenure of the land that they're on? So there's, there's different ways that we can look at, you know, how do we get different skill sets into, um, into the work that sort of complement the intent of what we want to do, but actually solve the problems differently. And I think, you know, there's a, a plethora of examples out there in terms of um, the use of drones for rapid assessment, the better use of data for uh, predicting work and taking anticipatory action. And, you know, that's something that CARE has really embraced around whether it's looking at microfinancing or carbon offsetting, recognising that we don't have all of the skills. We have a lot of skills, but to solve these problems, we have to have different forms of partnership. So, you know, we've got a partnership with Cause Chambers Westgarth at the moment, uh, looking at um, forming an international law and human rights law opinion on what are states' obligations for the impacts of climate change outside of their borders. And it's interesting, we, you know, Vanuatu at the moment, there's a, there's a group of people seeking an, an advisory position from the International Court of Justice on one of the lowest emitting parts of the world being on the front line of climate change and what are the obligations of others in that space. Uh, so there's a range of things that we're doing and, and technology is key, but actually so is just different, um, different skill sets. You know, what are the role of insurance companies in terms of uh, disaster response? What are the roles of some of the big tech and data companies to actually offer us different insights to be able to respond in, in improved ways? So we've really um, lent into that and, you know, it's part of us changing our model. We want to change how we do things through the respect and support of local partners but we want to add value in different ways beyond you know, the traditional philanthropy and looking at how do we really change the environment in which we're all trying to pursue these sort of uh, ambitious but necessary goals. Yeah, some really exciting innovations there. And I love also the innovations around financing and things like that, you know, with impact bonds and all sorts of different ways of moving away from the way that we've always worked into a new way of working, which which does offer some really exciting innovations. And I think that piece around providing long-term support rather than that sort of short-term constantly putting out fires versus that sort of building structures that prevent fires in the first place is a, a much better way of working. So some really uh, exciting exciting things that are going on at Care Australia. So um, we will link your website into the show notes if anyone wants to have a look and, and get involved in, in the work that you're doing. And I'm assuming that the pledge information will also be available there for people when that's all finalised and released. We've got another advisory board or steering committee next week, but I'm optimistic it will be I'm early October at the latest and very happy to share it then. Look, I will be holding an event with a group of CEOs where their Australian counterparts here in Australia, where their global families have signed up. And then we'll be really working, how do we work together to really push this along in Australia? So it's uh, exciting and, you know, I really hope this is a pivotal moment for international aid. 
feels like it is. So thank you so much for your conversation today. I really appreciate you spending some time with us and I'm really excited about the opportunity that does look like it's it's on our doorstep now. So thanks. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Innovate for Impact podcast. Any links to what we spoke about today will be posted in the show notes. If you'd like to know more about social innovation, visit our website where we have a heap of tools to help you on your way. Visit impactoconsulting.com.au. Thanks for listening. Now go out there and make an impact.